Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Greg Dacko dropping by the studio, Oxford Economics Chief, U.S. Economist. Good morning to you, Greg. Good morning. What are you looking for from the Fed this week? Minutes Wednesday, Chairman Powell Friday. Yeah, I think in the minutes we're going to see um, some key illustrations as to why the Fed decided to cut rates uh, earlier uh, this uh, this year um, and proceed uh, with what seems to be like a tentative mid-cycle easing. So some of the reasons, the key factors behind that mid-cycle easing, uh, the Fed chair Powell uh, noted that there was a key concern uh, to sustain this expansion uh, and to fight crosswinds, uh, international cross crosswinds and the uncertainty from trade. So we're going to see that. We're also going to hear from Powell at the Jackson Hole meeting and perhaps some clarification as to what the Fed intents are uh, going into uh, into 2020. So, Greg, there was certainly some, I guess, a misunderstanding or some, you know, miscommunication of kind of what Chairman Powell meant the last time they cut rates. Was it a mid-course correction, mid-cycle correction, or is it the beginning of an easing cycle? Do you think we'll get some clarity uh, coming out of the minutes and his test and his commentary on Friday? I think we'll get some clarity on the discussions that happened at the FOMC meeting in the FOMC minutes. I don't think we'll get that much clarity as to what the Fed's final intent is. Um, and that's really the key uncertain element uh, with regards to Fed policy going into 2020 is what is the Fed intent on doing. Um, I think the Fed is likely to deliver two more rate cuts, not so much to stimulate the economy, but really to reassure markets, reassure investors that the Fed is ready and willing to stand by should the economy slow down further than is currently expected, and in an environment in which trade policy remains quite uncertain. So Greg, this is where the doubts are as to whether this will actually work. The National Federation of Independent Business put out their monthly sentiment survey. They asked participants whether one 100 basis point rate reduction would change capex decisions only 12 percent said yes 21 percent said no 24 percent said not sure 43 percent said we're not even looking at borrowing the cost of capital doesn't seem to be a problem right now does it I don't think the cost of capital is an issue at all. I think what the key issue is for businesses is the uncertainty pertaining to trade tensions. Um, and the Fed is caught in a lose-lose situation because, on the one hand, it is trying to respond to potential tariffs or further tariffs by the U.S. administration against China and could be seen as reacting to political influence. On the other, if it doesn't do anything, we're going to see a tightening in financial conditions, which will have effects on business investment and CapEx and which will deter U.S. economic activity. Activity. Well, Greg, do you think that takes us, uh, that uncertainty um, takes us into a recession type scenario sometime in 2020? I think a recession is a possibility. It's always a possibility. What we're looking for in our baseline is an economic slowdown. You're seeing some of the, the key factors of the U.S. economy weaken. You're seeing business investment weaken. You're seeing exports weaken. You're seeing the housing sector still struggling. Luckily for the U.S. economy, U.S. consumers are still spending. The key question is whether the backdrop, the fundamentals supporting consumer spending remain as strong. And what we see is some slowing, some maturing of the labor market, which will gradually erode consumer spending growth. So that's why we're expecting the U.S. economy to slow from 3% last year to around 2 2.5% this year and below 2% in 2020. So in and around trend growth, essentially, Greg, that doesn't have to be a problem, does it? No, I think the longer, if you want to grow longer, you might as well grow at a sustainable pace. And that sustainable pace would be potential output growth. Um, the key question is whether there is 
any kind of policy that manages to lift that potential. We saw the big fiscal package that was passed in 2017 and 2018 with tax yeah. cuts and government spending lifting demand. It didn't really lift supply, and that was key at this point in the, the business cycle. We're now in the longest expansion on cycle, uh, on record, excuse me, uh, with 10 years of expansion. The key question is how do you sustain that expansion and whether that requires further Fed easing to actually do so. I'm not sure if it does or not. I mean, I've seen some stunning stats from the team at Bank of America on where the bond market is right now. The average yield on about $27.8 trillion of global non-dollar denominated high-grade debt, 11 basis points. Non-dollar sovereign yields now negative on average for the first time ever, negative three basis points, according to this report. That to me tells me that monetary policy is totally exhausted now. Yields are incredibly low and a policy anchor needs to come from somewhere else. Greg, what is that somewhere else? Where does it come from? Well, I think largely it comes from the fiscal side of the economy, and we're seeing uh, economies like Germany that had been reticent to any fiscal spending considering that possibility. So that's really where the fiscal stimulus will have to come from in the next downturn. Now, the Fed still does have some ammunition, but you're absolutely correct that in the current environment, we're seeing a lot of piling on into government bond debts, uh, government debt, um, and that is pushing yields lower and lower and lower. And in some cases, in some countries, a lot of countries today, uh, negative yields are, are becoming uh, uh, the norm. How, how much of your base case, you know, kind of low growth, you know, 2% call it growth, uh, is at risk with trade uncertainty here? Because it appears that despite some of the rhetoric we've been hearing out of the White House, uh, that nothing's probably going to get done on the U.S. trying to trade things till after the election. I think the most likely outcome is that we get a status quo. We might get some kind of trade deal as we approach the election because the administration is really intent on delivering something. But that trade deal will really be promises, promises by China to import a little bit more agricultural products, promises soy maybe beans, by the U.S. Soybeans. Exactly, promises <laughs> by the U.S. to pull back on some tariffs. Um, the key question, though, is whether we end up hitting a, a, a more of a significant downturn. And I think we have to remember that the only thing to fear is fear itself. That's really going to be key in the next 12 months. Do we start to see more and more of that recession bias? Do we start to see an environment in which businesses expect weaker sales and therefore invest less in the future? And that erodes the potential of the economy, that lowers our star, and that makes monetary policy perhaps even too tight uh, given the potential You of think the there's a risk that this could become self-fulfilling? I think that's the key risk today. It's not so much that the U.S. economy is actually um, entering a massive and rapid slowdown. It's the fact that people start to pull back because they don't expect a brighter future. They expect a gloomier future. Hey, Greg, great to catch up with you. Busy Always week ahead from here going into Wednesday. A little bit data coming up on Thursday. Then Chairman Powell coming up on Friday. Greg Dacko there, Oxford Economics Chief, U.S. Economist. bring in Ken Lee on CFRA Global Director of Research for the latest on what he's seeing. Good morning to you, Ken. Your thoughts on the sales that we're seeing, some of the results we're seeing from the big retailers in America. Uh, good morning. So for Home Depot, it, it is a mammoth company. So to move the needle on growth is always hard. But in this quarter, you know, we did see disappointment. Uh, operating income, pre-tax income, net earnings were all flat year over year. It's only because of the buyback of 4.3% shares that they were able to do an earnings speed of $3.17. So, Ken, it's, it's interesting here when you think about Home Depot, you think about housing. Just give us a sense of, you know, really how tied is Home Depot's results quarter to quarter to the housing market? 
So for the housing market, it, it is correlated to housing starts uh, and existing home sales. That's when you have your larger ticket purchases. Uh, but 196 million U.S. households stay where they are. Uh, but unfortunately, consumer confidence was down last week. It was down a lot. Um, and that really paints the picture in terms of whether you're going to remodel a kitchen or a bathroom. So I think uh, they're cautious for the rest of this year. You've got to remember, too, that Home Depot, uh, the July quarter is the peak quarter, and then numbers go down over the next three quarters. Happens every year. So, Ken, the blame game from the CEO, essentially primarily for the CEO, it comes from continued lumber price deflation. Then there's the unknown going into the back half of this year, the potential impacts to U.S. consumer arising from recently announced tariffs. Ken, how are you modelling that at the moment for a company like Home Depot? What do the latest round of tariffs mean for this company? Um, it, it clearly drives in terms of the top line, uh, essentially. First, uh, lumber, they said, was deflation. You know, they had a uh, 40%, 50% decline year over year, but they sell lumber, unlike other businesses where it's a, a cost and could be a positive. So the tariffs affects consumer confidence, as I mentioned before, and it affects the outlook in terms of sales. Sales going into a slower period for Home Depot. Uh, weather was not an issue for the July quarter. Uh, weather with hurricanes can also be a tipping point, but that could be uh, a good disguise to a weakening demand, not only because of tariffs, but lower U.S. consumer confidence potentially from that. So, Ken, I'm looking on the Bloomberg terminal on the A&R function. There's 22 buys, 12 holds, and one sell. What's the bull case for Home Depot here? I think it's you know the high quality predictability of their business. Uh, typically, home improvement retail is covered by other retail analysts, so on a relative basis, it looks pretty good compared to department stores, et cetera. Uh, we actually have a sell and felt uh, that this stock um, was expensive in terms of its valuation, always a high multiple, always a high debt company, but they're able to manage uh, very well, you know, with a great track record. But again, if the consumer doesn't have confidence to go in and make some large ticket improvements, it not only affects from the household, but an important part is the pro segment, which is uh, even important to Home Depot. So we'll hear more about that on the conference call. Again, interesting to see that they've maintained their outlook for EPS, for earnings per share. Do you think earnings are at risk here then, Ken? Um, you know, as I mentioned, the operating earnings were flat, pre-tax earnings were flat. Uh, their ability with terrific cash flow is to buy back stock. So, Ken, what do you, again, buying back stock, uh, obviously shareholders like that. What is, where are they investing for growth going forward? Or is this the footprint we have and it's just a call on the consumer? I think in the consumer space, a, a lot of this is very dependent in terms of uh, the outlook for the economy. You know, still, let's underscore that there's firm footing in terms of job employment growth and household income. Uh, but household income is also shifting to savings, not to this rapid spending and leveraging the household. Uh, and that's what the Fed data has been showing for the last six months. Historically, Ken, how has this stock performed in recessionary periods? I would not describe uh, Home Depot or retail as recession resistant. Uh, there's other areas that are more defensive. What are those areas right now? So the areas that we like are in the REITs and the real estate sector, particularly healthcare REITs. That's very recession-resistant. 
Other areas of real estate are cyclical, like office, even to some case multifamily. Uh, you also have to look at utilities. Uh, and then, of course, there's always a question and debate on what I cover, which is the banks, but the banks don't benefit from lower rates. Hey, Ken, great to catch up with you to get your thoughts on the retail sector and a little bit beyond. Ken Lee on there, CFRA Global Director of Research. Well, I'm pleased to say that joining us now is Terry Haynes, Pangea Policy Founder on the latest town of Washington, D.C. Terry, great to have you with us on the program, as always. Well, thank you very much, John. It's always my pleasure, believe me. Let's start talking about what's happening with the administration today. Larry Kudlow is expected to be meeting with business leaders pretty soon. And Terry, I'm trying to get my head around as to whether the C-suite in America is starting to push a message that is resonating with this administration on the trade issue. What do you see happening at the moment, Terry? Uh, What I see happening is a more public continuation of a lot of things that have been going on in private for quite some time. And one of the one of the functions of uh, Larry's job and, uh, and the folks that work for him uh, is to is, is to maintain an outreach uh, and a dialogue with the business community. And uh, what I think they're doing by uh, what I think they're doing by making these things more public and in some cases, like uh, with the president and Tim Cook the other day, uh, bumping them up to principal level. Uh, is uh, is making sure that the business community understands what the administration's concerns are, uh, what the be- and, and frankly what the benefits are from uh, from remaining on side with uh, with the United States position, uh, and uh, and ha- and and having the administration and having the administration explain uh, frankly how it's uh, uh, how it's trying to moderate. So I think all those things. So, so Terry, even with a greater engagement by uh, corporate America with the president on trade, what is your expectation? Will anything actually happen between the U.S. and China, or is this something that is a going to be kicked, you know, kick the can down the road to after the elections? My my expectation, Paul, I don't think it's I don't think it's being kicked down the, the kick the can is being kicked, but my expectation all year uh, and on record as saying that I thought that. The United States-China trade war was not going to be resolved anytime in 2019. Uh, the, the, the differences are fundamental, and the differences are fundamental because uh, China, for, uh, for whatever combination of reasons, uh, does not want to make an enforceable agreement. Uh, it regards enforceability as a violation of its sovereignty. Uh, that ought to concern people, since the, uh, the generally, if you like trade agreements, because uh, the, the bottom line here is that uh, all trade agreements have to be enforceable, otherwise they don't work. And uh, so the, by implication, this is not a, just a U.S. problem. This is probably a G7 and a WTO problem as well. Combine that with what's going on in Hong Kong and the, uh, the China wondering about whether or not it ought to step in. Uh, the, this is not a great moment for, uh, for, the, for the rule of international law. But what I expect to happen is that the United States and China will keep talking, uh, they may make a little progress here, may, may, may make a little progress there. But fundamentally, I, I expect that as long as the two countries think it is to their mutual advantage uh, to continue talking, uh, in part because it calms markets, uh, they'll continue to do so. Uh, but do I see any cracks in, uh, in the armor on either side, any willingness to uh, compromise further in the short term? I do not. 
So, Terry, at one point not too long ago, um, you know, officials uh, certainly on the uh, U.S. side were saying that we were, you know, quote unquote, 90 percent there to a deal. Do you think that was actually accurate or is that last 10 percent really the 10 percent that matters? Um, I think both of those are true. I do think that it was uh, the case that they were very close on a deal. And I think the last 10 percent is the 10 percent that matters. And this is uh, what crystallized my view that uh, enforceability is really the problem. As I say, you don't have an enforceable deal. You don't have a deal that's worth anything um, on either side. And uh, and China pulled back uh, because uh, China decided that uh, enforceability was a violation of its sovereignty. And uh, you can read into that uh, whatever you will. But the bottom line is uh, the United States wants an enforceable deal. And as long as and when if and when China is ready to have an enforceable deal, I think they uh, I think a, a deal can be concluded very, very quickly. And I'm not saying that to pick sides here. All I'm saying is that enforceability has been a key for the United States since day one. And beyond that, enforceability has been something that is the linchpin of every trade deal. Uh, you know, just the discussions about how we're going to enforce the new provisions of the uh, the new NAFTA agreement, for example, yeah. is uh, is always a big deal. Oh, so, Terry, I don't think it's about picking sides key. either. I just think it's the difference between right and wrong. If we're going to have a deal, it needs to be enforceable. Well, well exactly. Uh, and you know, as I say, that's that's a standard uh, that. That's a standard conclusion of trade deals. And one of the things that happens as a result of trade deals is that the, the, the signing nations change their laws. Uh, so, you know, the, the China is going to have to change its laws and its regulations uh, as a result of any trade deal. This is something that they acknowledged that they would have to do as long ago as May 2018 uh, in a joint uh, communique with the United States, public communique. And, uh, and now they, they claim not to want to do it. So uh, that, that, to me, is the linchpin of any deal. So as China continues to drag its feet and it becomes increasingly difficult to get that deal, Terry, we need to talk about the policy effort from elsewhere. In the New York Times today, at the White House rushing to find a recession shield, there is talk the administration is looking at a potential payroll tax cut. There has been pushback from the administration against that idea and as to whether they are actually working on it. What do you see happening? Are we about to see more tax cuts in America, Terry? Uh, I don't think we are, uh, because uh, it would be impossible to get uh, more tax cuts through Congress, fundamentally. Uh, So I don't think that that's likely to happen. Uh, But what I do think is is the case, and what always remains the case, is that White Houses look at their policy options and try to figure out how how they can aggressively push forward. Uh, Would the White House like an additional uh, buffer uh, to maintain economic growth as much as possible? Sure, it would. Uh, it's been upfront about that since day one. Are they likely to get it from uh, the current Congress, which is uh, nominally uh, Democratic in the lower house? No, they are not. Uh, so you have that, but I, I and you know, and you, you, you put on top of that, I think, the, uh, the, the requisite uh, uh, mainstream media uh, huffing and puffing about uh, the White House scrambling to do this and scrambling to do that. I, I see them as being very consistent from day one and not scrambling at all here. So, Terry, just with some benefit of hindsight, the tax cut of 2017, how much, how impactful was that for the economy, in your opinion? Oh, I think it was very impactful. And it was an impactful uh, uh, as much on animal spirits as it was uh, in reality. Uh, but you know it's wearing off, and the the and firstly and secondly the uh, 
you know, the, the, the difficulty with uh, the trade dispute is, firstly, it drives the animal spirits in another direction. And secondly, there has been a market impact on business investment and the in lessening business investment and sustained increased business investment was one of the core cases behind the 2017 tax law. So that's uh, that's clearly being damaged. Uh, so it's wearing off. Is it reversing? I think not. Terry, just a final question for you. As you point out, there is a bit of an obsession in the mainstream media at the moment over recession talk. I, I would say that extends to the business world as well, Terry. What is happening behind the scenes that you think is being neglected right now that needs a little bit more focus? Um, on the business side or on the political side? On the political side. Oh, um, I would uh, – on the political side, I think what uh, politicians of all stripes ought to do is, uh, is, is look at the fundamentals of the economy with a little bit more care and understand exactly what's happening. Uh, you know, d- d- divorce, them, uh, d- d- divorce themselves a little bit from, uh, from the political rhetoric. Uh, as we go into an election season, that'll be awfully difficult, but uh, that would be my recommendation. Hey, Terry, great to catch up with you, as always, draining some of the political drama out of the conversation. As always, Terry Haynes there, Pangea Policy Founder. General Electric apparently has a very high exposure to the long-term care insurance market, and it's worse than average when it comes to adequacy of reserves tied to those policies, according to Fitch Ratings. To get a sense of what's going on at GE with their insurance business, we welcome Catherine Chiglinski. She is uh, with Bloomberg News covering finance. She joins us here in a Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Catherine, thanks so much for joining us. First of all, I thought GE had sold off all its financial services stuff, so why are we still talking about insurance policies for them? Because they still have ties. And it's been an interesting, I think, revelation for a lot of investors over the past two years to recognize exactly how connected GE is still to the insurance market. So their reinsurer policies, which in essence just means that they backstop other insurers. Okay. Um, they did spin off Genworth, which has a huge amount of um, long-term care policies back in 2004. Um, so you're right to think, you know, hey, they separated it a bit, but they're actually still very tied to this market. So I see in your... Uh, your uh um, reporting today that uh, GE actually took a charge last year tied to the insurance? Yeah, so they took a $6.2 billion gap charge. And that was the moment, I think, when everyone realized, you know, dang, these policies are there and they're very painful for the company. And it's only continued, I think, to dominate investors' minds since then. Because, you know, uh, last week we had Harry Markopoulos, who was made famous by um, calling out Bernie Madoff. Right, he came up with right. a report that was pretty scathing. It, it pretty much called GE out, um, called it a fraud, frankly, and um, chastised it for its insurance accounting, saying it might need $29 billion more in reserves for this. Um, GE's obviously pushed back and has kind of spent this whole past week talking talking a lot about its insurance operations and exactly what it might need. So is there, I, I guess when they spun off the financial services, it was in large part because with the financial crisis, it was just a real albatross for the company. So uh, is there something particular about their insurance business that is worse than maybe what we see from some of the other big insurers? Well, so long-term care in general is very complicated. Any any company that has long-term care exposure, even if they're not selling the policies right now, still generally has a bit of a headache from them because they've become a lot more costly. People are living longer. They're not giving those policies up. And so we've seen it be, become a big burden for other companies. But with GE, it's 
particularly nuanced and a bit more complicated because they are a reinsurer. They're like one step removed exactly from the end consumer. And it makes it a little harder, I think, for people to get their minds about how does this actually work? How much is GE exposed? And, you know, frankly, I think whenever anyone looks at GE's um, long liabilities, whether that's long-term care or pensions or something, they have a little bit of a concern about how much has the company actually been investing in it over the past couple of years? Because to be honest, they're more of an industrial giant than right. a... Uh, than a financial services one, as they, you know, sort of were in the past. So, what is GE saying about how they want to, how they potentially can mitigate some of these, I guess, long tail risk from their insurance business? Well, I think they're trying to calm investors down, right? So they emphasize, you know, as a reinsurer, we're not responsible for 100% of every claim on every person who has a policy. So, like in the most dire situation, it's it's not as bad as maybe some people might be suspecting. You know, GE, I think, is really taking more of the tact of we need to explain it because the the less information people have, the more easy it is to get scared about it. Um, you know, GE has said that they would look for many options on what to do with this block of business, but it's really actually hard to sell an old block of long-term care. That's because it's been volatile. It's really hard to get a buyer who's willing to pay the price that you want. Right. So um, so it can be actually kind of a complicated um, deal. It's not easy to just hive off like uh, some other businesses. Right. So I can't let you go without talking about Berkshire Hathaway. I know you covered them. What's the latest uh, coming out of Omaha? Well, so uh, the other week we had the 13F, which was pretty interesting. It was actually a rather quiet quarter um, for the company. And uh, we saw them actually book up a little more on Amazon. And I think that's been really interesting with Berkshire, something we've seen over the past year or so. Um, actually past couple of years because it's more of his investing deputies sort of getting their their feet under them and really sort of shaping the portfolio in a way that I think is interesting because Buffett himself doesn't really love technology. Right. They historically stocks. have not been certainly overweight in tech. Totally. No, yeah. And, and he got burned a bit by IBM. That wasn't yep. a great bet. Um, and so it's been interesting to say, you know, um, he made it clear that Amazon bet is not by Buffett himself. It's okay. by either Todd Combs or Ted Weschler, who's okay. who are his investing deputies. Um, but it's been interesting you know, uh, what does it sort of say about sort of what the future of Berkshire will be as, you know, kind of the stock picking behemoth. Yep. And um, the more we see them kind of book up on these technology companies, I think the more the more interesting it is about the future. So Kraft Heinz, I guess, what's the latest there? It's been such a disappointment for shareholders in general and, general, and certainly for Berkshire Hathaway. Um, what, what, what are they saying about what they possibly can do with that investment? Well, I think it's um, we, we finally got an update this month um, from Kraft Heinz. They reported their six months. Finally, right, because it was yes. delayed, right? It yep. was delayed okay. because they were under investigation, had to do a lot of accounting things. Um, so finally, we got some results. It wasn't that pretty. You know, I mean, there were still like charges for um, as they sort of reconciled stuff. And, you know, I think it's. I think it's really hard for this company to sort of turn it around easily. Um, you know, they have a new CEO in charge. And it's interesting to sort of, it's hard to gauge exactly how Berkshire thinks about it, right? Um, you know, when he went on in February to talk about it, he mentioned like, you know, it's, we're not gonna, we're not looking to buy more of the stock, but yep. we're also not looking to sell it. And it's particularly hard for him to sell out of stocks when he's this huge of an investor. Right. So he sort of raises that question of, you know, would he really stay around? If he could get out easily, or would he be, you know, miles down the road from Kraft Heinz? Because he's uh, Warren Buffett's already admitted, I guess the the 
the merger of the two, Kraft and Heinz, was a mistake, correct? Yeah, well, so he said that they overpaid for they Kraft. Overpaid. Okay. So he was good on the Heinz part, not so good on the Kraft part. Yep. And he's also admitted that like consumer brands have changed. You yep. know, the pricing power they once had is really challenging. And um, it's a statement that like definitely applies to Kraft Heinz, but I think is particularly interesting when you put it in the context of all of Berkshire's investments. I mean, they have a huge ton of kind of consumer-friendly stuff. They yep. do Fruit of the Loom, yep. Dairy Queen. Um, so it's kind of an interesting thesis. You know, if it doesn't work in the packaged food world, do you think it's going to work in all the other worlds? And I think that's a question for, for Berkshire and the shareholders going forward. Right. So what, you know, you mentioned that some of the, 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 the two new deputies are probably responsible for the Amazon uh, investment. What is your sense of kind of the percentage of decision-making is Warren versus the new breed here. Who's making the majority of decisions, do you think? Well, still Warren controls the majority of the portfolio. Okay. Um, so both of them control about on average 13 billion or so okay. um, each. And so it's still small. Okay. That's why sometimes if you see small investments creep into the portfolio, it generally might be a Todd or Ted investment. Yep. Um, so, you know, still, I think there's deference to the guy who yep. built Berkshire and, uh, and, but I find it interesting. I mean, you see, you see stakes like, um, like Apple and other ones where, you know, he's admitted, yeah, a, an investing deputy, you know, sort of did it too, yep. but then I also piled in. And I think those are interesting because it's like, how does he decide, you know, um, this was a good idea and, and now I'm going to go kind of full force with all the power I have in my um And what's the latest, if, if any, on timing of kind of really retiring or stepping back yeah i don't think there's been much there hasn't so, been, right yep um at the beginning of 2018 we had uh the promotion of greg abel and ajit jain to yep. vice chairman and those are very important roles because you know greg who formerly just ran their energy operations all of a sudden got oversight of all these different businesses all the non-insurance ones so the railroad dairy queen all right. of those companies and ajit jain who's known as berkshire's sort of insurance guy got full control of all the other insurers um it was an important important step, but I don't think it really, we haven't heard a ton since then about exactly what um, Buffett or Berkshire is thinking on succession. Right. Well, well I mean, you know, he still seems very engaged and uh, people still flock to the Omaha meeting every year. And he's the first phone call for a lot of CEOs when they need 10 or 20 or $50 billion. Uh, so uh, it seems to be working right now. So uh, Catherine Chiglinski, thanks so much for joining us. Catherine covers all the finance stuff and all the insurance uh, stuff for Bloomberg News. Uh, does a great job giving us an update on <clears throat> General Electric and uh, Berkshire Hathaway and all things insurance. So, Catherine, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.